I'm tall, but I'm not this tall. <laughs> well, we are looking at our fifth time together at what it means to be free indeed, free, free really. Some of the implications of that, what does it mean to be in Christ? And tonight it takes us to Hebrews, Hebrews 10. Uh, and um, again, kind of be a little bit different for us uh, in terms of uh, the passage that we're looking at and uh, just the, the type of uh, literature, I guess we would say it is. But I, I do pray that it will be used by the Spirit in each of our, our lives uh, this evening. So Hebrews chapter 10, uh, I, I kind of hear that the papers have start, stopped, so that means you're there, so I want you to go ahead and, thank you Keith, uh, for uh, standing as I read Hebrews 10, uh, we'll begin in verse 19, go through verse 25, that is the section that we are uh, looking at. Uh, we will be setting a little bit of the, the greater context, but this is the passage that we will be looking at, and hopefully it'll jump off right off the page of how we got tonight's kind of title of our session, Free to Draw Near. The writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our gracious God, we thank you for the day that we've had with each other, wherever it may have taken us, uh, in activity or in calm, in quiet or in conversation. Lord, as we continue to seek to understand, to embrace, and to live out what it means to be free in Christ, and that he has set us free. that we may continue to understand the implications of that in our life, in the life of uh, our church, and in the life of the Christian. And Lord, I would also pray for those who are here this evening, who have been here all week, and hearing what it means to be free in Christ, and yet they have yet to trust in Christ. That, Lord, that in the midst of all of these things, that the gospel would be clear to them, that their need for Christ would be clear, and that they would seek to be free, knowing that their sin enslaves them. 
And it's in Christ alone that that freedom can be known. It's in his name we pray. To his glory, amen. Would you be seated? Well, tonight, we, as we just read, we find ourselves in Hebrews. And Hebrews is uh, a little bit kind of one of those tricky books. There's a couple of New Testament that, you know, for laymen like me, it's a little tricky. And one of the things that kind of immediately arrests us is the fact that we have no idea who the author is. Now, I mean, when I say no idea, theologians and things, they've debated this, and you can get a commentary on Hebrews, and I'm sure they will spend pages on why that particular author feels it's this individual or that individual, and they're looking at internal evidence and external evidence and all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, you can't say with all certainty this is who the author is. Um, We can tell, and I think most would agree with this, that it is written to a largely Jewish audience. Uh, There are so many Old Testament uh, references and nuance and the the law and the temple and all these things that it clearly is to those who had that kind of background. Uh, So these are likely Jews who believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the the promised Messiah. So they're they're Christians, uh, but again, having to lay a, a foundation for them. And... If you notice, and I, I know that Luke teaches well, and I know that uh, we get, like I said earlier, we get very fine teaching on Sunday mornings, that the very first word that we see in our passage tonight, therefore, is a huge flag to us, right? A uh, big signal is saying, you know, what's the therefore, therefore? Why is it, you know, we're, we're clearly coming, He's whoever the author is, has said something before this, and based on that, he's letting us know because of what I've already said in you know nine and a half chapters before, or perhaps the immediate context. Now I'm going to tell you the implications of that. And we're not going to go through the entire nine and a half chapters prior to this, but it connects us to the truths that were said before. And if we could say it very simply. The context that he has built in these nine and a half chapters that have gone before is the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is supreme over and he gives us all kinds of things that the Jewish Christian would have gone, yes, oh, okay. You know, these things that were certainly elevated at some point uh, for the Jew. But he's saying Christ is even better than that. He's better than the angels. He's better. uh, he, He brings a better... Uh, sacrifice, Uh, there's a better priesthood, all of this found in Jesus. So the superiority, supremacy of Christ. Having set that stage of how Jesus is better than all these things that Judaism and the law and the old covenant had built up to this point, that Christ is better, therefore, because Christ is better, He's going to recall uh, for us two preconditions for entering into the once forbidden with confidence. And we're going to unpack those two in just a moment. But this is the whole idea of being able to enter in something that at one point you can even get close to. 
when I'm thinking about this, of the, the fact that you were put off of this sacred ground, I'm reminded of a, of a scene from a movie. Now, you already know I like fishing. You definitely know I already like Batman. If somehow they made a movie about Batman fishing, my goodness, <laughs> take my money now. But one of the things that you may or may not have picked up on is I also like movies, probably more than I should. My one claim to fame, my son already knows what I'm going to say probably, is that I've seen every movie that has won Best Picture since the very first one in 1928. I'm not that old. I actually had to get copies of it, but I've seen every movie. I was on Christmas vacation once and just thought, i got a couple weeks. I should get the list and watch all the movies. Not in those two weeks. It took me a couple of months. But I've seen every movie, with the exception of the one that just won, Coda, because it's not available yet to me. But I've seen all the other ones. And you're probably thinking the same thing. Really? When you stand before God, this guy going to say, what have you done for my son? And I say, I've seen all the movies that ever won Best Picture. But that's where grace comes in. And I'm kind of hoping that maybe a couple of the apostles will pull me aside and say, hey, let's talk about the ones from the 30s, because that seemed like there was a slump during that time. Um, but that's probably not going to happen. But one of the movies that actually did not win Best Picture, but is one of my favorite movies, if you're going to talk about dramas, if we're going to break them up into categories, is a movie that some of you might have seen if you were in my son's class, because we've talked about it, is Jeremiah Johnson. Now, the reason why I like Jeremiah Johnson, uh, for the two of you who have seen it, is it brings together one really good movie making, but it also brings in this historical aspect. There really was a guy named Jeremiah Johnson. He actually went, he had the nickname of Jeremiah Liver Eater Johnson. They don't bring that out in the movie, sadly. Uh, but it's this great movie about a guy who is a mountain man. And you really get a flavor of what it would have been like for them. And in this one scene, and Johnson pretty much, for the most part, just wanted to be left alone. That's why he went to the mountains to be a mountain man. Just want to be left alone. And there's this one scene, kind of a pivotal scene, this won't spoil it for you, where this cavalry comes along. They had heard about Johnson, that he knew the mountains well. Bless you. And... He said, they said, look, there's, there's some settlers that are stuck. We need to go in and help them out. And he goes, well, then you better get going. Snow's about to come. And they said, well, we're kind of hoping that you can help us out. We don't know these men. You know, what are the chances we could find the way there? He goes, oh, practically no way. So finally, these guys convince Jeremiah Johnson to leave them. So they're going along, and then, boom, he stops. Because he comes across this tribe's burial area. And he stops and he says, we can't go through here. We can't go this way. He says, we're going to have to go back and go a different way. And he's like, well, why would we have to do that? Well, because this is burial ground. This is sacred territory for this tribe. And, of course, the, the leader of this, the cavalry group says, you don't really believe that, do you? Because it doesn't matter if I believe it or not. They do. This is strong medicine to them. This is sacred ground. You do not go through here. You don't desecrate this by just going through it, even. 
Now they convince him, this again won't spoil it for you, they convince him to go ahead and do so. Big mistake. I'll leave it at that. But it was sacred ground. You don't touch it. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say is, there was a time where there was this sacred ground, truly was sacred ground, that now things have changed. And the reason why it has changed is because of Christ. And he recalls for us, before we get to the implication of it, he gives us two preconditions, and we need to remember this as we go through the, the really the three main points. The two preconditions for entering into the once forbidden area, if you will, with confidence. Not only can we now enter, but we can do so with confidence. And it's not based on us or what we do or what we haven't done. He says two things. One, right, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, that's the once forbidden. Why? One, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So one precondition is by his sacrifice. By his sacrifice, by the sacrifice of Christ, we're allowed now to enter this once forbidden area. In the Old Testament, right, there was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And of course, there was the big sacrifice once a year, the Day of Atonement, where only one person, the, whole, uh, the, the high priest, was able to enter into the Holy of Holies, make a sacrifice for the nation. And he did so with fear because of what he was doing in entering into the Holy of Holies. And if he did so in an unrighteous way, he would die on the spot. Who wants that job? So much so that they would tie a rope around the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies for the Day of Atonement. Because guess what? If he goes in in an unworthy way and he dies, who's going in there to get the body? Nobody. So they would drag out the body. That's how serious it was. But he's saying, that's done away with. Why? Because there's a high priest, Jesus Christ, who has entered into the Holy of Holies and has taken care of that with his own blood, not the blood of, of goats or sheep or anything like that. And secondly, this precondition is his mediatory ministry as high priest. That is between God and man. See what he says? And since we have a great, great high priest over the house of God. See, the, the priest, right, was not just to make these sacrifices for the people, but was a mediator between God and man. He says, all of that's been done away with because the, the superior one, the one of supremacy has come, Jesus Christ. All those other things were just kind of pointing to the one who would come someday, but Christ is here. Because of those two things, there's, there's this great comparison between Old Covenant and New Covenant that has been going through this whole, this whole book. He says, one, that we come with confidence. That's New Covenant. Come with confidence. Old Covenant... Mount Sinai, stay away. 
quite different. He says, right, there was a veil in the Holy of Holies, separated the high priest from the rest of the people. Only the high priest could go in. And that was a picture, right? But that, as we're told in Matthew 27, that when Christ was sacrificed on the cross, and Matthew 27 it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. So he, right, that's at the point where he dies. And it says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Something big has happened. Big change. And it was torn in two from top to bottom. That is significant, right? Not bottom to top. It's not that man has done so to enter before God, but God has opened up the way for us to enter in. And the earth shook and rocks were split. There's a better sacrifice, we're told in chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify the cleansing of the flesh, how much more, how much better will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse you, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Right? Old covenant, new covenant. And finally, he also tells us in chapter 5 of the priesthood. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness and because uh, of it, he is uh, obligated to offer sacrifice for sins, as for the people, also for himself. Right? The high priest, it's not just for the sins of the people, but for his own sin. No one takes the honor to himself and receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we go on and on with this, the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's appears in a small area in the, the Old Testament, but he was both king and priest, as is Christ. So because of that, keep in mind, it's because Christ is supreme in these things, that he is entered in and made the way. The veil is torn, and that was just symbolic, and it says, right, it was through his flesh that was torn. Since this is true, therefore, since we have a better sacrifice, since we have a better high priest, now we have, finally, the three exhortations, or what I would say, the three invitations in the face of difficulty and persecution, because that's what they were going through at this time. And the first is this. Because of Jesus Christ, and you'll notice all of yours says this. I was looking at the outlines today. you got a lot of lines there. It's like you're filling in one word. <laughs> right? Largely. Uh, because of Jesus Christ, 
We are called to intimacy. Because of Jesus Christ, we are called to intimacy. And we get that, I'm getting that from verse 22, let us, and you'll notice, the, the points are really clear here because they all begin with the words, let us, let us draw near. I can guarantee you those words impacted the original hearers much more than it does us. Because for them, for the Jew, it was always God is far off. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, God is saying, come near. Come near. This is quite different from Mount Sinai. If you remember, when Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments from God, God says, keep the people away. I don't want them even touching the mountain. I'm not saying don't have them come up with you. Don't even have them touch the mountain. Don't even let their cattle touch the mountains. If they do, they will die. Stay away. Now he says, draw near. Come close. It's even different than the temple worship. Sure, there were those who were allowed to come in, but there were levels of that. In the most holy of holies, as, as I've already said, only one person could, and that was once a year. And then it went out from that. And that was just a shadow of the reality. The, the congregation was excluded, and yet now, he says, because of Christ, come close. And he tells us how we are to do this. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. We might say a genuine heart, an authentic heart. Not worship that is contrived. It's not worship that is for appearance only. Jesus said in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 7, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart, right? It's always a heart issue. They were giving the externals fine. He says, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Right? That's, a, that's a, what a hypocrite is. It's actually a term that was used of actors. That's not to make any implication on today's actors, though there probably is some parallels. But it was people who would wear a mask to portray an image. And Jesus is saying, when you don't come with a sincere heart, even if you're doing the actions of worship, you're a hypocrite because you don't come with an authentic, genuine heart of saying, here are my praises to you. Take me as I... And he says, I want you to draw near with a heart that wants to be near me. Please come. And why or how are we to do this? 
having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Clearly, uh, there's, there's this imagery of those who would prepare for the worship in the temple. But the heart sprinkled clean certainly is a, a, an indication of Ezekiel 36, which is a promise of the new covenant. It says then, this is God speaking, I will spring clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and your all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone, like we sang about tonight, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He does this for us. He's calling us. He says, I'm going I'm to prepare you to come here to me. You will have a, your conscience will be clear. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. He's taken that guilt. He's taken that shame. So come near. You're free now to draw near. What's keeping you? Brothers and sisters, when we call people to Jesus, when we're saying, won't you trust in Christ? Won't you trust him as your Savior? We are not primarily, and I emphasize that, we are not primarily calling them to get better, though sometimes I think that's exactly what we're, we're doing. We're saying, wow, your life is really messed up. Come to Jesus and have a better life. For adults who might be, wow, your marriage is falling apart. Come to Jesus and have a better marriage. Wow, you really don't get along with your parents too well. Come to Jesus and get along with your parents. Now, we might not say that, but that's what we're thinking. When we tell people, come to Christ, you're a sinner who needs a Savior, that is Christ, we're not calling them to get better. We are primarily calling them to intimacy. Come to Christ. Draw near to God. And the only way you can do that is through Christ and what he has done. Come to Christ. And be free to draw near. Not to, be, not to stay away, but to draw near. I do believe there's a secondary intimacy implied here. I do Clearly the, the emphasis here is draw near to God, without a doubt. But I do think within that there's a secondary implied intimacy. And that is intimacy with one another in the body of Christ because of the grace that has been shown to us. We can draw near to each other in relationship because you need grace and I need grace. And we both find grace in the same place. Christ and Christ alone. As Pastor Tony said on Sunday, right at the foot of the cross, level ground. No one higher than anybody else. So we can have that kind of intimacy. We can draw near to each other. At least in theory we can. That's how it ought to be. But what keeps us from that intimacy? 
Because let's face it, sometimes the body of Christ, the church, is the last place you want to be drawing near to people. That's just true. It's unfortunate. They're spiritual lepers. You know what lepers are from New Testament time, right? People who were the outcast, and you probably know, if you don't, you're going to know it now, what a leper had to do if they were approaching people, imagine having to say this, unclean, unclean, stay away, unclean. It's a leper, my goodness. And oftentimes in the body of Christ, it's just like that. It's as if someone has to go around with their guilt and shame. Unclean. Don't get too close. Some of my sin might rub off on you. You might not want to be around me because of my reputation. Might make you feel uncomfortable at times. There is, unfortunately, oftentimes in the body of Christ, this sense of superiority spiritual or otherwise. There is the shame that either we hold within ourselves or that others remind us of. There's this idea of status and keeping up appearances of, again, either on a spiritual level or even just in material levels. Remember what, what we read in the New Testament, right? When they're saying, you know, how dare you? You've got, you've got the rich man comes in, you've got a poor man comes in, you've got to tell the rich man, oh, come sit here in the good seat. Uh, you poor guy, you, got, you can come in, but you know, take the lowliest of low places. They were even having problems back then, and that was when, you know, things were still kind of new and fresh. 2,000 years later, you know that it's been multiplied so many times. Quite frankly, sin and grace removes those things when we understand I'm as much of a sinner as you are. I'm as much in need of grace than you are. Probably more so than you do. I have a good pastor friend who tells the story of how uh, there was a woman in the church and he was pastoring and she came in. For some reason there was something about him she didn't like. Imagine that. Someone not liking something about a pastor. And she felt boldly enough to tell him you know, Pastor, I don't like da-da-da-da-da about you. He goes, oh, he says, that ain't nothing. I'm much worse than you You think. He just kind of blew it off, you know. Yeah, that's true. If I could tell you the sin of my life, yeah, then you, you, know, you would be going the other direction. There is a, a freeing, there is a, a, a liberty both towards God and man. when we realize that he's called us to draw near because into intimacy because of what Christ has done. Christ who is our sacrifice. Christ who is our perfect high priest. Yet another movie that some of you might, might have seen. I, I, I always... Hesitate to recommend, not recommend, even mention movies, because maybe it's a movie that you know, your parents don't want you to see. I don't know. Um, so be it, I guess. Uh, that'll be between your parents. Uh, but there's a movie that 
it's another Coen Brothers movie, the same people who did Raising Arizona, which I've already quoted from this week. Uh, it's actually a brilliant film, great music, takes Homer's uh, Odyssey and brings it to a historical 1930s Depression era uh, called uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, great movie. And there's a scene where they're out, there are three, three criminals who have busted out of a chain gang, and they're out in the woods, and they come across this church meeting where they're having baptisms. And one of the idiots, they're all three idiots, one of them decides, I'm going to go down. He's drawn to this. And he decides, I'm going to go get baptized. You know, I'm going to have my, you know, come to Jesus meeting. And he does, and as he comes by Delmar, he says, the preacher says all my sins are washed away, including that piggly wiggly I knocked over at in Yazoo. Ulysses, the, the, smart of the smart one of the idiots, says, I thought you said you were innocent of those charges. He says, well, I was lying. And the preacher says those sins have been washed away too. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me. Come on in, boys, the water's fine. Now, I'm not going to argue his conversion or not at this point. Pete kind of understood a little bit about grace at that moment. He says, it's all gone. It's all been taken away. Just moments later, I think a little bit more of a profound line from the movie, as they're arguing about whether or not they don't have to worry about the police anymore, Pete, who's also one of the idiots, says, the preacher said it was absolved. Ulysses, the smart one, says, for him, not for the law. The preacher, yeah, the preacher's fine with what you've done, but not the law. Delmar says, but there was witnesses that seen us redeemed. Ulysses says, that's not the issue, Delmar. Even if that did put you square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi's a little more hard-nosed. And I thought, wow. I mean, it's a comedy. I get it. But that reflects so often, too often, the situation within the church. Maybe us being in Christ has squared us with the Heavenly Father. But your church brothers and sisters are a little more hard-nosed. They may not be so quick to be as forgiving as the Father is. Now, I know we can say, well, that's not right. Of course it's not right. But that's what sometimes, some of you probably have already faced that. I was sharing with brother this week uh, about, again, another incident that I had heard. It's not from a movie. It's from a, uh, an actual church meeting where there was a new Christian just came, just recently came to Christ, decides he's going to his first Sunday night prayer meeting at the church that he was now a part of. And they're like, hey, we're going to come, we're going to pray for each other. How can we be praying for, for you? What are your needs there? Like an idiot, he thought that was a legitimate question. And he gets up and talks about an area in his life that he was struggling with. I could use prayer for this area in my life. And the response from the people that were there, twofold. One, unclean, unclean. Don't get near them. 
And two, for those who dare get near them, this is what you got to do to fix it. Which taught him, never talk about what's really going on in your life. Because they're just going to hold it against you. And the pastor who was relaying that story in a, in a book, he said what needed to happen was someone in there needed to stand up and say, me too. I struggle with that too. Come over here, I'll pray with you. That's what needs to happen. The drawing near, sharing life. Why? Because God says, draw near to me. I can draw near to you. On the same basis, because of Christ. What he has done. His grace, his mercy, his blood. He's our high priest. Therefore, draw near with confidence, with a sincere heart. You are free to draw near. Secondly, because Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, because he is our sacrifice, because he is our high priest, we are called to hope. See, this hope thing keeps popping up. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do not let go of what you know to be true, is another way of saying what the, the writer saying. Don't let go of what you know to be true. Without wavering, in the face of hardship, in the face of persecution, the face of perhaps others who are rejecting, the face of those who are maybe walking away, Stay the course. Hold fast the confession of our hope. Why? There's a reason. He tells us why. For, that little word, for, gives us the reason why we should hold fast to the confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. Doesn't that sound a little bit like something we read earlier today from 1 John 1.9? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins, wash us. He is faithful. That's why we hold on. He's not like us. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man, not a man, that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The implied answers to those, of course, is of course he will. Because he's not like you or me, that maybe with all good intentions we make promises and then we fall, fall short. Sometimes we have no good intentions. We just say it because we want you to respond in a certain way. But he says, hold fast the confession of our hope. Right? This is the, the same the same writer who has told us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. He's just going to say that a few more verses later. And as we read this morning, our salvation is rooted in his faithfulness. Now our faith is not a blind faith, as some perhaps would accuse us of. Our hope is not wishful thinking. These are anchored to his faithfulness. Let's be honest, though, we are prone to doubt even when he is faithful. We're so much like Israel in that. 
We are like his disciples. He has said this. He has promised this. And I don't know if I can really bank on that. Things don't look like they're lining up what he has promised about. So I'm going to go with how things look instead of. Or things don't look so well now. Gee, remember how well we had it back in Egypt? Man, we were eating at buffets every night. Really? I don't think you remember too well what life prior to Christ was like. And as I stated this morning, do not doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. Hold fast. Grip it. Embrace it. The hope that he has given to us, that which he has revealed. This is, quite frankly, one reason why it is important for us to regularly enter into his presence intentionally. Because we are so prone. And I include myself in this. I'm not just throwing this at you guys. We are so prone to forget his character, his nature, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised. We need to be reminded, just like the nation of Israel, just like the disciples, we need to be reminded, constantly reminded, putting it back through, because we forget. So we are reminded of who he is and his faithfulness. So because of Jesus, we're called to intimacy, draw near. We are called to hope, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And finally, because of Jesus, we are called to provoke. To provoke. The writer says in verse 24, let us, not before, right? It says, uh, let us draw near. Let us hold fast, and now let us consider. Well, that's easy. Just got to think about something. That's a little bit more than that. It does mean to think of. It means to consider. It means to observe. It means to see. Right? So there's more intentionality to this. And notice that he says, let us like he has in the others, but let us consider. This is the responsibility of every believer. These aren't just for the elders, for the leaders. If you name the name of Christ, this is for you, this is for me. What are we to consider? What are we to observe or see? Let us consider how to stimulate, which is an interesting word, because it could be positive or negative, The Greek word means negatively, it can mean to irritate, irritation, exasperation, to incite, contention, provoke. Positively, it can mean to stimulate or provoke in a good way. It is rare that is used actually in a positive way, but clearly it's here in a positive because of the context. Now, I think most of you know at this point that I'm a teacher, have been a teacher for quite some time. And I can say with all certainty that sometimes students can exasperate or provoke a teacher. Did you know that? Some of you might have first-hand experience with that. Do you think that they do that on purpose? 
Sure they do. Sure they do. I could tell you numerous experiences where I've had students who have stimulated and provoked me. How did they know the right thing to do to get under the teacher's skin? Because they know what to do. They know that teacher in first period is not provoked by the same things that teacher next door in second period is, or teacher third period, right? They know, well, if you do that, that one. How do they know that? This is where you get to participate tonight. What's that? They know the teacher. They know the teacher, right? They probably, you know, they might try different things the first day or two if they don't know you because, well, you know, we're just going to use the blanket provoke methods. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try this. Eventually, they know. They consider this teacher. Hmm. What's going to work with this one? Without even knowing it, they're studying the teacher. Maybe they've heard from other students, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Jonas, well, you know, if you do this. <laughs> they know exactly how to. We must be, in a positive way, <laughs> students of each other. We need to know each other. We need to learn how to spur each other along in godliness. Right? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, I've met some people within the church. Oh, they'll, they'll, they'll consider how to stimulate one another, but not to love and good deeds. They will say something along the lines, maybe not these exact words. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah my spiritual gifts, right? We're going to exercise spiritual gifts. My spiritual gift is the gift of confrontation. I don't remember seeing that on any of the list of uh, spiritual gifts. <laughs> Confrontation. Well, yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to get in there. You got to tell people the way it is. Don't back down. That's my gift. That's not what I see here. Think about, consider, really be intentional about this, how to spur each other up. Two things. Love and good deeds. Love, you, right? You know, right? Greek, agape. But here's the tricky thing. Think about this. If I'm to spur you on to love, okay, this, this is how I'm going to help you to love. Not to be a more loving, lovely, you know, that I think you're a more lovely person. Spur you on to act out in love. <coughs> Love must have, has to, have an object. Love isn't just love out there. Love is directed. It always has to be directed. It's not just love. This isn't, you know, the late 60s. Love. No. Love. Love, right? It has to have an object. Now you say, okay, what's the big deal? It needs an object. It underscores the importance of community. It brings us back to draw near to each other. You can't love others if you're not with others. 
It's impossible. You just can't do it. And good deeds through love. And this begins in the assembly, the body of believers, and moves outward. Right? Stimulate you to love and good deeds. Doing well for the benefit of someone else. Genuine needs. Again, how are you going to know what those genuine needs are? Unless you're with people and you study people and you know people, you spend time with them. It's not just taking your little you know, legal pad and going up on a excuse me, uh, what's your current need? I don't know, maybe that would be a good place to start. It gets us going at least. But it, it requires spending time with people. Hey, let's go out for a cup of coffee. Scott for an ice cream, whatever. Don't have a hidden agenda. Just, just want to know you more. How can I be praying for you? Not so I can fix you, so that I can be praying for you. And if there's some way that I can spur you on, in that, that, that's great. It's all, oddly enough, in the context of persecution of these particular believers. So it's not like when everything's going well. It could be when there's huge persecution coming and we're still looking, how do we spur each other on to love and good deeds? Verse 25 continues the thought set forth in verse 24, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. They're not forsaking, don't abandon, don't uh, desert our own assembling together. There may be some sense here of the whole Jew-Gentile hostilities that existed in the first century which is beyond our scope this evening. Well, except to say this, we, we should touch on it. Because there, there's so much really for us today. Right, Jew and Gentiles hated each other for different reasons, different ways. But I'll give you one, for instance. For a Jew, a good Jew, good practicing Jew, could not even allow the shadow of a Gentile to fall on them, or they would become defiled. Not even your shadow. Now you tell me how you're going to sit with your Gentile brother in Christ, worried that his shadow might fall on you. There's some hostility there. Now, we may not have that, the shadow with you, but we got other things. Sometimes it is racial, as it would have been then. But maybe it's other things. Things about people that, in our minds and our hearts, unclean, unclean. Don't get near me or you might defile me. There's no room for that in the body of Christ. Notice that, and the Bible does this all the time. It says, don't do this, but do this. Not forsaking. And he doesn't just say, don't forsake. The assembling of yourselves. But instead of forsaking, what are we to do? We're to encourage each other. Stop separating yourselves. Rather, come together, draw near, and encourage each other. Going back to the how to stimulate one another. Certainly the gathering of ourselves together has lost 
some of its importance. It's the thing we do on Sunday morning. Maybe it's the thing we do and hang out on Wednesday nights. Are we being intentional about this? Are we considering, thinking of, considering, observing, seeing how we might stimulate one another to love and good deeds? Encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. Which seems to indicate, speaking of the, the return of Christ there. All three of these activities, intimacy, hope, provoking, are based on the finished work of Christ, our high priest. The question that we kind of even started with is, have you substituted Christ for other means of entrance to God? Because there is no other means. But I go to youth group every Wednesday night. That's great. And I know you're hearing about Christ there. You're hearing about your need for Christ. Is it you're substituting religious activity, your religious experience, religious knowledge even? These are not Jesus. He calls you, he calls me to draw near. We are free to do so. Unlike Mount Sinai, stay away. Come near because of Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Our great God, mighty, holy, powerful. It is beyond belief. It is astounding that you would call us, invite us to draw near to you. But we know that you do so because of Christ. That you've taken sinners and you've taken that which deserves not your love but your wrath and it pleased you to crush your son for us. It pleased you. And you took his perfect obedience his life of righteousness and you have clothed us in his righteousness so that as you look upon us you see Christ so Lord we seek to draw near not on our own merit but on the merit of another, your Son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate, we worship this gift. 
And as we draw near to you, may we draw near to each other in community of those who have tasted of your mercy, of your grace, and that we would seek how to live out the life of grace in community, stimulating, provoking, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. On the basis of the grace that has been, and love that has been shown to us. Lord, show us where we come short in these things. And that we would bring it to you. And that your spirit would continue to shape us and to mold us into the image of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great high priest who drew near and called near those who were put out and showed his love towards them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.